0: Beloved congregation of the Lord, would you turn with me again in your Bibles to the fifth chapter of this second epistle to the Corinthians, and read with me verses 19 to 21. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Well, congregation, this week I had the privilege of going out for a couple hours with a Christian brother to go door-to-door in a a nearby neighborhood and to speak to people in that neighborhood about the gospel. And if ever you've done something like that, spoken to a variety of different people about their souls, about the Bible about the message of Jesus Christ then I think you'll discover as as indeed we did that there's a variety of different ways in which people reject the gospel and so for example there was uh, one man that we spoke to who came from a Hindu background, a pagan background who not only did not have any understanding of the message of the Bible, but actually rejected the fact that there is life after death, and he had a very, um, a very sad uh, world and life view, one that was was basically hopeless. although he was was nice enough to speak to. We talked to another uh, lady who was uh, of a Muslim background who who actually had a, a fair uh, fair knowledge of the gospel, at least according. To what uh, she said, and she understood the differences between her religion, Islam, and and how they embrace Jesus as a prophet, but reject him as the Son of God. How they don't believe in salvation through faith in his death. And we spoke to another man, a man who claimed to be of some kind of Christian background, but said he had. Had no need for a relationship with God or the Christian Church because, you see, he's he's able to do good all on his own. You look at all these these different examples of of different ways in which people don't understand the gospel and indeed reject the gospel. And I think you'll uh, you'll agree that there's there's a great diversity in them. But the f- same fundamental fact remains that they lack that understanding but you know it can also be the case with those who are what we call church people that you can take uh, those who um, are used to hearing the words uh, that we just read in our uh, three verses here of this text they're used to hearing about the truths of the gospel and on some level, there's some understanding of those truths, but when it comes to a spiritual understanding, a personal understanding, a saving understanding, well, that, that is still lacking. There, there is no true faith in the soul towards this gospel. There is some, something or another that is yet getting in the way. There is resistance to the message of reconciliation. That was what Paul was dealing with, at least one of the things he was dealing with in this chapter. We've spent so many months going through these verses, and we've seen that Paul had a, a task of defending his ministry from false teachers who were threatening the souls of that church. But again and again, he's coming back to the fundamental central truths of the gospel he had a persuasion that the way to combat all kinds of different errors it was essentially the the central truths of the gospel and that it was this means that god would use to overcome opposition and resistance to this saving message so in paul's day so also today With the Lord's blessing, which we earnestly seek, let us consider verses 19 to 21 under the theme, the gospel of reconciliation, the gospel of reconciliation. And we'll see three things from these verses. First, reconciliation by God, reconciliation by God. Second, reconciliation in Christ, reconciliation in Christ. And third, the invitation to be reconciled. The invitation to be reconciled. Well, we understand, don't we, uh, having touched on it in in previous verses, that the word reconciliation is so very easy to understand. It denotes a relationship between two parties that has been broken. We all know what that's like. In one way or another, you have a good relationship with someone. You maybe are close to someone, a friend or a family member. And then in one way or another, such relationships can be damaged. They can be damaged such that it even seems to be beyond repair, where once there was unity, there was friendship, now there is hostility, now that there is no longer the kind of fellowship which was once enjoyed. You notice that uh, this uh, Apostle Paul, he speaks about this when he gets to the very heart of his ministry. He speaks about himself as one who possesses the ministry of reconciliation. We considered that in a previous sermon. And now he, he continues along this theme. He, he explains in what sense he has this ministry, what the essence of this ministry is, and what the message is. And it, it comes out in, in this way in verse 19. To wit, or in this sense... That God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. You see, the world needs to be reconciled to God. It's something that I not to be something that we need to be persuaded of, but in fact it is the case that a great many people, maybe especially in our day, in such days of spiritual hardness, both inside the church and outside uh, the church often, is that people just assume that they are at at a state of friendship with God. They assume that God is pleased with them. They assume that all is well. And so they live and they die in a state of utter hostility towards God and not even being aware of it. Each man and woman and boy and girl, they come into this world in a state of opposition towards God. They do not serve God as their highest aim. They do not delight in God as their greatest good. They do not adore God as the most Wondrous object of beauty and affection. No. They serve a false god and that god is the god of self. Their own desires, their own appetites, their own agenda, their own plan, themselves. And they can take all sorts of different forms and garbs. They can take the the form of one who is just living in the world in an in obvious state of rejecting the gospel as people I spoke to this week, but it can also be the case for people who are respectable members of the visible church. That is also a dreadful reality that we are each in a need for reconciliation with God. And so how does one in such a state, come to grips with that reality when it begins to sink in that God is holy and I am not. There is this great gulf of separation. The friendship is shattered. The relationship seemingly beyond repair. We have sinned against him and rejected his ways. Each one wandered in his own way. Well, a natural tendency is to try to find some way to reconcile with God. And each one of man's religions, each... ...or not, they will in some way be trying to find some sort of righteousness of themselves and by themselves to make things well. A little bit of knowledge of religious things will make someone a religious person, in a sense. They can, just as well as anyone else, they can try to fix themselves up. They can clean up the exterior. They can go through religious observances. They can come to a church service. They can say words of prayer. And they can look down on others and say, well, all others... Seem to be either worse or at least as good as myself. All things must be well. And yet it is all as vain as that tower called Babel. Remember that tower, don't you? In the early generations of this world, there was an attempt to have such a wondrous name among the nations. A group of people in that land of Babel, they tried to build a tower unto heaven. We know what happened, that act of self-will, God came down, he confused the languages and, and scattered the people, showing what man's religion about, amounts to. But each and every one of us, we have a building project by nature. We want to get up to God, we want to think ourselves good people, and so we, we have all these different devices of reconciling ourselves to God. But what do we see in this text? What is it that Paul speaks about when it comes to this gospel of reconciliation? Well, this is what he says. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. You see, this reconciling, it takes place on the side of God. The message of the gospel is something about God. It's something that God does it's something about God's reconciling the world unto Himself? You see, the gospel is good news, it is news about what God has done, it is not advice. We see here. That in this gospel, it speaks about what God has done in the past. God was, in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. The facts, the facts of history, events in history concerning this man, Jesus Christ, but preeminently concerning God, God's plan of salvation, God's activity in history, These things that happened, they reconciled the world unto himself. didn't make this reconciliation a possibility or an option, but in fact, he reconciled the world unto himself, God did. God's powerful activity, setting himself to this plan of salvation. It was God who acted to reconcile a world of sinful humanity unto himself it was in grace that God acted. He didn't act upon those who were righteous, those who were good, those who deserved it. Look what it says here. Look at the astonishing statement that we have here about the grace of God, the undeserved favor of God towards sinners. It says here that God was reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. A striking way of speaking and one that's very common in the scripture. I'm sure the understanding of this will not be foreign to many of you. Here God is speaking as at once the grieved party against a criminal. The one whom a criminal offended against as well as the judge standing as the one to give a verdict over the criminal offender. That is the position of The sinner who is reconciled unto God, he stands guilty. Guilty as charged, a heinous offender, one in need of reconciliation. And yet the word of the judge comes. And what is it that he will say to you, sinner? Well, for a sinner who is reconciled unto God, this is the verdict that your trespasses are not imputed unto you. Legal language. Speaking about how a judge regards a criminal case. And the case here is not guilty. The trespasses do not exist. And this is a similar language. Indeed, the very same word is used in Romans chapter 4 and verse 4, where he describes the logic of the gospel, one that is very central to a saving. Knowledge of the gospel. We see there in Romans chapter 4 and verse 4. Not to him that worketh is the reward regarded of grace, but of debt. Easy enough to understand. If you could earn your salvation, sinner, it would not be of grace. It would be of debt. It would be no less than you deserved. If you could do anything whatsoever to earn the favor of God would no longer be of grace. It would not be according to the manner of the gospel. But what do we see in verse 5? But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, this faith is counted for righteousness. Here we, we see that it is not the works of a believer that is there standing before God. It is nothing whatsoever that you or I can do that can make ourselves right with God. But rather, it is by faith that they are counted or regarded or imputed to be righteous. God deals with the ungodly. And deals with them as though they had committed no offense and indeed had fulfilled all righteousness. This is the activity of God. Nothing in man's thinking could ever have devised of such a gospel. Nothing that you or I could ever have imagined up could come close to this. Nothing else could flatten the pride of men. Nothing else could exalt in the goodness of God but this, that God would purpose of himself in order to show mercy upon a hell-deserving world in this way, that he would find a way not to impute their trespasses against them and in this way to reconcile them unto himself. You see, my friend, it is only in this way, God's way, in God's work, that we can be reconciled to God. We see in the, in the second place not only reconciliation by God, but reconciliation in Christ. That is what the apostle says here, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself not imputing their trespasses unto them. If we would ask the question, what is the way in which God can be both just and the justifier? How is it that he can disregard the sins of the world? How is it that he can uh, look away from your sins or my sins and deal with us as though we were perfectly righteous? Well, it is in, in this way he deals with them in Christ. It was the life of Christ and the person of Christ and the work of Christ and the death of Christ. That is the answer here. God deals with us in Christ according to what this person, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one chosen to be the savior and the mediator, this one who was indeed the eternal son of God come in our flesh. This one is the one through whom the reconciliation of the world must come, not in any other way, only this in Christ. And what does he mean? What does he mean in Christ? Well, he explains what he means in the 21st verse, and this is, is just completely worthy of our attention. One of the most uh, full definitions and explanations of the gospel here in verse 21 for he have made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Oh, you might uh, wonder, well, what does it mean? What can it possibly mean that he knew no sin? Well, well this is speaking of uh, the Lord Jesus here. It's speaking of him as one who knew no sin. And And that, of of course, in one sense, is is not strictly accurate. If you would take that to mean he had no awareness of the reality of sin. This one, the Christ, he walked in a real world, the real world, our world. He experienced men and women as they truly are, as estranged from God, as hostile to God, as ignorant of God, as given over to their lust, to their self-righteousness, to their pride, he knew that sin exists, existed. He experienced it every day, living in a world under the dominion of the evil one, with those who were given over as slaves to the devil. He knew sin. It grieved him. He hated him. He opposed him. That's really what it's getting at, isn't it? He knew no sin as far as is his own experience, as though... Uh, He is saying in his experience, he knew not what it was to sin. That's very different than you and I. There's no one, no one here. I can say this categorically. I may not know each one of you as well as others. I may not be able to peer into your soul and know your spiritual condition. But this I know, you know sin You know what it is to wander in your own way, to think your own thoughts, to have thoughts that are repellent towards God, to not love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and in some sense to be happy with that, to to be one who is at enmity with God. In some measure, we know what that is. And this one did not. This Lord Jesus, every thought was pure towards his God and Father in heaven. Every thought towards his neighbor was one of love as well. He knew no sin whatsoever. A spotless lamb of God. One who is without the least blemish of sin. And yet, what does it say here? He... God, he hath made him that is Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Just look at those words. He hath made him to be sin for us. I don't know of a stronger Sentence, I don't know of one that I would be more terrified to say were it not in my Bible. That this one, the Holy One of Israel, the, the hope of the nations, the light of the world, the Lamb of God, that this one should be made sin. In God's reckoning, in God's judicial verdict, He treated Christ as though He were sin. And do you understand that there is no antithesis, no opposition, no hatred that is greater than that of God towards sin. God is at war with sin. God is of pure eyes than to even behold sin. And God treated this one, his Messiah, his Christ, his son, as though he were sin. Not that there was ever for a moment any sin in Christ. Not that even when he was raised on Calvary's cross. Not when they drove those nails through his hands. Not when he was forsaken of man beneath and heaven above. Not even then was there the slightest inclination towards sin in his soul. No. But in the way God dealt with him was a sin itself. He was under the curse of God, under the wrath of God, and the wrath of God burned against him as intensely as though he were sin itself. God is light, and him is no darkness at all. But this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, he dealt with as though he were pure darkness on the cross of Calvary. And so what do we make of this congregation? Therefore, if we are in him, we may be reconciled unto God. That is the message of our text. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. How is it? How is it even possible? How is it even logical? How does it make any sense whatsoever that God would take a sinful man or woman or boy or girl, and say over that one, there is now no condemnation. Well, he can say that because they are now in Christ Jesus. They are attached to him. They are connected with him. They are bonded to him. They are in Christ by faith. That is the teaching They are in Christ, and so being in Christ, God will deal with them as though they had fulfilled all the requirements of God's law, for that is what Christ did. Christ fulfilled the demands of God's law, and so if you are in Christ, you have as well. In God's reckoning, in God's accounting, in God's verdict, there is now no condemnation for them who are in Christ Jesus. And likewise, if you're in Christ, all your sins, every single one, every single slight against the holy character and word and law of God, it is banished as far as east is from west. It is all fallen upon the substitute. And there is nothing of that in how God regards you. Such is the teaching. Such is the great exchange. We can say unto Christ, you are our life. We are your death. You are our righteousness. We are your sin. You are our reconciliation. We are your condemnation. A great exchange. The sins of the world falling upon the sinless substitute in this way, bringing reconciliation unto this sinful world. And this is this is the reality congregation. If today, if you would search your soul and you have to confess that you are finding your reconciliation in any other source than that of Jesus Christ, it is no true reconciliation whatsoever. If ultimately your hope is in anything else under, other than that of the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ, then, then it is something that will not withstand the weight of eternity nor perhaps even another day. But here is something to rest your soul upon. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. But such have you heard before, and some of you for many, many years, all these truths of the gospel. And you can consent to it in one sense. You can say, such is true For sinners. But never have you been able to say. Never can you dare say. Such is true for me. Not sincerely. What has this passage to do with you? Well let's come to our third and final consideration from this text. The invitation to reconciliation. The invitation to reconciliation. Paul speaks about this in a number of different places in these verses. He is speaking as a minister of the gospel, as one who is called and commissioned to be a herald and a preacher of this gospel of reconciliation. And so he can say there at the end of verse 19 that God hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. And indeed, there's a sense in which all the Christian church can say that together this is the truth once for all delivered unto the saints, the word of reconciliation, but in particular the ministers of the gospel. It is we who are set apart, especially to herald and to proclaim this truth in an official way, as those who are, as Paul will say, ambassadors for Christ. Thus he says in verse 20 now then we are ambassadors. For Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. It's incredible things that are spoken of here. You see, each and every minister of the gospel, one who is truly called to that office and calling, they are endowed with the authority of an ambassador. And any ambassador, if they are sent by a king or a president or a prime minister, they have all of the authority of that head of state, provided that they speak according to the mind of their ruler. If They go to another uh, kingdom and speak in their own words. Well, then they are liable to get themselves into very uh, deep trouble or else cause such confusion and chaos and, and devastation. But insofar as they speak the mind of their ruler, then indeed that is the voice of their ruler. And so also with every single minister of the gospel, any man who stands behind this pulpit, who speaks unto you about what the Bible teaches, who explains it accurately, who applies it unto you, that, it says here, is the very voice of God to you. Every minister, every herald, even the one who speaks to you right now, they speak as God and as Christ. Look at at the full weight of what we see in verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead. Be ye reconciled to God. It's been said in the past that the most dangerous place you can be is inside a biblical church. Dangerous. Because there, under the preaching of the word of God, you are accountable for everything that you hear. And so if the minister would explain to you straightly that those who live and die in their sins will face an eternity under the wrath of God, if they would tell you, here is the standard of God, here is the law, you have broken the law, you stand condemned, and that Itself, that is the very voice of God to you. And you're accountable for what you hear from this pulpit, from every preacher of the word. You are accountable as though God Himself spoke to you, for God Himself speaks to you through the word of the preacher. But not only, not only when we explain and set forth the curse of the law, but also when there is that invitation of the gospel. It says here, to with, sorry, verse 20. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ, be ye reconciled to God. So Paul beseeches. He prays, he pleads, he pleads with his hearers. Be ye reconciled to God. Is that not what every preacher is called to do? If we would stand in the place of Christ, it's not only the message of Christ, but the very heart of Christ which must come through. The one who speaks to you today, I myself, I who am an ambassador for Christ, I plead with each and every one of you. Be ye reconciled. God, Here is the gospel. You have heard it set forth to you. This is not my imagining. It's not the imagination of any man. It comes from God himself. He speaks it to you today. He has said it is all done. It is all finished. Christ has paid it all. He has suffered and died. He has paid the cost. He was made sin that we might be made righteous in his sight. All that remains is that you, as a needy sinner, would fall down upon this gospel. You'd cast yourself upon the mercy of this Christ. You would trust in him with your faith that you would be reconciled to God. I plead, be ye reconciled to God. Why is it that there would be those here who are not reconciled to God? What is so appealing about being in a state of hostility towards God? You live your life according to your own lights. You come to church services. You hear of real Christian experience. You hear of the work of God in the soul. You hear of the fullness of the gospel. And yet when such things are spoken, you harden your heart. You resist. You turn your back upon such things. There is rebellion and rejection that maybe no one else knows, but God sees it. You are not reconciled to God. You are in a state of opposition to him. You will not have this Christ. You will not have his salvation. Why? Why will you not be reconciled to God? Has not the fullness of the gospel been set forth? What would it mean to you if Christ himself were speaking here? What if you could see his nail-pierced hands? What if you could see his eyes burning with love? What if you could see the hole in his sigh? What if he would beckon to you with his very words, Be ye reconciled to God. It is all finished, sinner. I have done it all. Believe upon me. Receive reconciliation to God. Would there be anyone who would dare reject such a word? Would there be anyone with the audacity to say, no, I will go out those doors. I will enter this week in a state of hostility towards God, and I will not be reconciled unto you, Christ. Well, let me tell you something. However flawed and fallible is the man standing in front of you, I speak not for myself. I speak in Christ's stead, as though God himself beseeched you by me. Be reconciled to God. Everything, sinner, that you could possibly want is found here in the gospel of reconciliation. Do you want true joy and happiness? It is not found in this world that is perishing. It is found in God. It is found in knowing God, of living for God, of knowing that God is your father and friend, of knowing that you are not under condemnation, of knowing that for you to live is Christ and to die is gain, of knowing that all of heaven is wide open for you, of knowing that every prayer is received of him, of knowing that every act of obedience is acceptable in his sight, of knowing that there is life and life abundant each and every day that you get up. And could there be anyone, could there be anyone who in the face of such inducements, such encouragement, such pleadings would not welcome reconciliation to God? Oh, is there anything that keeps a preacher up at night? It is the awareness that there may be those who hear sermons such as this and yet harden their hearts. How terrible it is to contemplate that the very la- a word that is a savor of life unto life for those who believe is a savor of death unto death to those who perish. To think that there could be those who, after hearing the pleadings of Jesus Christ, would still harden their hearts and would still perish in their sins. Oh, sinner, it does not have to be the case. What is there left to do? Do you think you have to climb up to heaven to bring him down? Do you need to go down into the deep to bring up Christ? Do you need to do anything whatsoever? No, the word of life. Is nigh unto thee. The word of reconciliation. Simply receive, simply believe, simply cast your cares upon him. Shall he not receive you? No, there is no condemnation for any sinner who comes unto Christ in this way. I plead with each and every one be reconciled to God, believe upon his name today, and find that it is certainly true. God was in Christ reconciling me unto himself. Amen.